0: in Galilee at this time, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, and then Matthew alludes to a prophecy about those two regions that was given by Isaiah, chapter 9 of the book of Isaiah, verse 1 and 2, reads, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death a light has dawned. A light has dawned. We often hear this read uh, during Christmas time and as people think about the coming of the Savior. But here it is said, directly to his disciples. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. I'm reading scripture. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are synonyms. As is evident from one gospel writer using one term and another using the other term, but both of them speaking about the same identical event or teaching from Christ. So they're interchangeable. Matthew's emphasis is that the kingdom of God has something to do with Gentiles, that's us, who have never heard the good news. They have lived in spiritual darkness all their existence. Luke tells us, that after his temptation in the desert, I'm reading scripture, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. At Nazareth, his hometown, where he had been raised as a boy, he entered the synagogue where he read from a scroll from the book of Isaiah. Here's what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. The eyes of everyone were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, of course, this being a Jewish crowd, that they thought that Jesus uh, reading of one coming whom Isaiah prophesied referred to them. <laughs> Must be us. Isaiah is talking about. In other words, they saw themselves as the poor ones being helped, the prisoners to be released, the blind who would receive their sight. But as Jesus went on to explain Isaiah's words as they applied to him, he told this account I'm reading. Many widows in Elijah's time when there was a great famine in the land, but God sent Elijah to none of them but to a widow in Zarephath of Sidon. Luke 4, verse 24. And he told of Elisha, who although there were many leprous people in Israel, none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Ooh. In short, Jesus was saying that the kingdom of God had something to do with God working with, oh no, the Gentiles? Not primarily the Jews? The Jews? And this so infuriated the synagogue audience that they drove Jesus out of town and they planned to throw him off a cliff. But miraculously, he just walked through the crowd and went on his way. You can read about that in Luke 4, verse 30. They didn't like what they were hearing. You mean our God. is going to bless those barbarian Gentiles. So, both Luke and Matthew make it quite clear that the kingdom of God is not just about God's dealing with his chosen people, Israel, but about his turning his attention to those who have never been his people. The Gentile nations... This so infuriated Israel, who though given the task of carrying the light of the gospel to the nations, had instead protected it, guarded it, jealously and selfishly as their own and not yours. In their hatred for the Gentiles, They cared little that God's word should be taught to them. Oh. Wherever the word of God is taught, guess what? People find God. They do. And the Jews did not want God's favor coming upon the Romans, the Greeks the Persians, or any other considered to be barbarians. So this is a classic example, is it not, of God's own people being out of touch with the will and plan of God. It happens. And why were they out of sync with God? because they had their own agenda of what God was to do or not do, and nothing was going to interfere with that plan. This is how wicked we become at times in our relationship with God. Even as his own people, who have been shown mercy by his grace and have entered into the joy of his salvation, we become self-absorbed in these spiritual benefits and see no need to share them with others. And this sometimes expresses itself by indifference or apathy. See, we need not be openly hostile to evangelism for this to be true of us. We can simply
1: Mm.
0: not care about others and where they stand in reference to the kingdom of God. This was Israel in Jesus' day. And it may be us as well in our day, which would be a very terrible problem. So what I am saying is that the kingdom of God is not just about the church, the people of Christ's spiritual body. It is about people who know absolutely nothing about Christ. Like the Gentiles of Jesus' day, we have people in our day whose only knowledge of Jesus Christ is a curse word which they hear used around their homes when someone is speaking angrily towards another person. They are still blind, though the light has dawned. They are poor, though the one who can enrich their lives has arrived. They are imprisoned by their sin and live within its confining walls, not knowing that a king has come who, as the hymn writer says, breaks the power of canceled sin, and sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood availed for me. This is the good news of the kingdom of God, but precious few in our culture know about it. We who walk in Christian circles must recognize that our neighbors, our co-workers, and the average person on the street use Sunday for recreation, not religious education. The Bible is a closed book to them because they never read it. Never. And if they did read it, they would not know who to ask to help them understand it. While Jesus started his ministry from the very beginning, speaking of the kingdom, you will note from our text that Jesus says to his hearers that the kingdom of God is near. It's an interesting way of putting it. It's near. This is an indication to us that from God's perspective, the kingdom of God has different phases or periods of development. As we search the scriptures, we understand that the kingdom of God began at Christ's first coming and it continues even now as Christ sits enthroned at his Father's right hand, awaiting the subduing of the nations Hebrews 10 verse 13 and there's yet the future aspect which will be ushered in at the return of Christ when all things will come under his judgment and his rule no phase of the kingdom is any more important than the other as God works his will throughout history. But, perhaps it is wise for us to realize that we are not in the beginning days of the kingdom, but somewhere in the middle. And from the signs in Scripture, maybe towards the latter half of the middle. This is why Paul tells us Let me read it for you. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace seasoned with salt, that is, may it have a good taste to whatever you're saying, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. That is the idea that there's just so many opportunities to talk of Christ and his kingdom to those in darkness. And Paul is saying, snatch up those opportunities, before they're gone. Now, it's hard to talk about the kingdom of God without talking about a king. As soon as we Americans hear about kings and monarchs and kingdoms, we kind of tense up. We find the idea of absolute rule questionable, even repugnant. Because in our thoughts, we think of dictators like Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, who ruled over their people like tyrants. And in our day, we think of the little demagogues in Cuba who continued to repress his people to keep them poor while he lives well. We think of men who are preoccupied with personal power and wealth and notoriety and who care little about the people over whom they rule. Yet democracy itself has its troubles too, especially if the people do not share the same fundamental standards and the same ultimate goals as a nation. Even with its ills, however, our preference is still democracy over monarchy. And we would fight to keep it that way in our country if we thought it were in danger of being overthrown. Nonetheless, God reminds us in his word that he is creator. He is king. He is judge. He is Lord. And he tells us that we all will be judged by him as a servant gives an account to a master. And the standard of judgment is his word not your collective voice. He sits on the bench of justice as the judge and jury, and no one will be able to question his verdict, which is based on absolute, all-seeing, all-knowing truth. And he has the sovereign force to influence it and see that it is carried out in his kingdom. So, God challenges our whole world here, and now by the presence of the kingdom and the establishment of his son Jesus as the king, the Old Testament prophets spoke of this and predicted the time of God's intervention in the affairs of men by the use of the phrase, the day of the... Lord the day of the Lord Do not under, do not misunderstand what is meant by day In Jewish thought day stands for an event not a date an event It can include a whole period of history distinct and marked out from other events. Thus, the length of the day is immaterial. The Jews viewed time in terms of content, not duration. So the day of the Lord would mean a specific time in which God would personally interject himself into the business of men in his coming, his power, his judgment, and yes, his blessing and condemnation as the situation arrives. The ultimate purpose of the day of the Lord is the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth as it already established in heaven. And The most outstanding characteristic of this day is that God comes in person to do this, and no longer through prophetic statements and activities, wonderful as they are. Thus, Zechariah prophesies, reading his words, See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. Zechariah 9, verse 9. And when we compare that with Isaiah's prophecy, what does Isaiah say? See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. Isaiah 40, verse 10. So it becomes evident that the king who establishes the kingdom of God on earth is none other than God himself, present in his son, whom he has installed as king, while the nations were trying to get their act together to oppose him and defeat him. You can read about that in Psalm chapter 2. And as a final observation then, we note that the emphasis in all of this is on the kingship, not the kingdom. Who's the king? That's the question and there is no kingdom of god without the king and it is the king which makes the kingdom of god a reality and so the great emphasis when speaking of the kingdom of god is on the kingdom is on the king himself and his activity as opposed to real estate our dispensational friends need to get a hold of this they got this elaborate scheme. Christ is going to come, and he's going to defeat those that possess Israel, the land, and he's going to take it over, and he's going to stand on Mount Sinai, and he's going to rule the world from the kingdom state. their great emphasis is speaking of the kingdom of God is to talk about land possession rather than the king himself. The point is one of a dynamic sovereign, not a limited geographical area. Thus Jesus made some startling statements about the kingdom which only makes sense when we understand this. For example, our text. The kingdom of God, says Jesus, the kingdom of God is near. Near. Oh. That means not yet. Here, because it has to do with a person, not an estate, not terra firma. Luke puts it this way Luke 11, verse 20. Jesus is talking. If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Again, not real estate, but a person, God's Son, Jesus. There's no kingdom of God without him. Luke 17, verse 20, when asked by the Pharisees about the coming of the kingdom of God. This was a topic, boy. They really want to know this. Jesus replied, here it is. The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, well, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. In other words, it's spiritual, not physical. Mark 9, verse 1, he, asked, he said to them, I tell you the truth, some of you standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Wow, what a blessing he's saying to them. You're not going to die until you're part, you are part of the kingdom. All of these scriptures show the kingdom of God to be something active as the king does his work. It is not terra firma, which is being talked about, but people. People. Praise God. And the idea seems to be that we do not bring the kingdom of God in, but rather the kingdom, or the king, brings us into it. We can observe it, we can enter into it, we can receive it, we can be a part of it, but we do not manufacture it by social or spiritual programs. It is not the making of men, it's the making of God. Building his kingdom one person, At a time? Do we not have a scripture that says the angels of God rejoice in heaven over the conversion of one person? Sounds pretty selective. One person at a time, one person at a time. Not crowds, not thousands in an arena. Now, I know some truths for our souls. Number one the kingdom of God is intended for pagans as well as for the people of God, for the unchurched, the religiously ignorant, as well as those who know God as friend and Savior through Jesus Christ. To be sure, to be sure, there is that part of the kingdom which is Christ's true people, those who are ruled by the law of Christ, and they love it. They've made their peace with God about their sin through faith in Jesus but where, from where did these people come? Were they born Christians? <laughs> There's no such thing as one born Christian. No, the way people became part of the righteous at the forgiven side of the kingdom of God is that God in his mercy brings them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Paul, as he explains to the Ephesians what happened to them, writes this. Remember that formerly you were all Gentiles by birth, and you were called uncircumcised? Remember that at that time you were Separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, that's the people of God. Foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God in the world. Wow. (laughs) That's negative, 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 negative negative three strikes you're out what happens with five strikes you're out and you're buried you're dead you're gone that's where we were separated foreigners without hope without God but now brought near by the blood of Christ. We ask, how did this happen? Ephesians 2, 11 and following. Paul, please tell us, how did this happen? He continues. He came and preached peace to you who were far away. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself, as the chief cornerstone. Ephesians 5, verse 17 and following. Okay, that just opens another door. How did Christ come and preach to the Ephesians? Think on this. Christ had already ascended to glory. Well, Paul says that the Ephesian Gentile pagans were made part of the household of God by being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself as the cornerstone. Simply put, they believed the message about Jesus Christ, which the apostles and prophets preached. And their testimony, which testimony we still
1: have
0: in the Bible, was the way Christ was brought to them. May I say, brethren, you will discover Christ no other way. No other way. He is the subject of the Bible. He is the epitome of all human history. Or as he declares himself, I'm the Alpha and I'm the Omega. I am the beginning of the alphabet. I am the last letter of the alphabet. And all in between A and Z that spells out to sinners how they can become part of the family of God. You miss me and you miss salvation. These are, wow. These are mind-boggling claims. (laughs) Jesus seems to be saying, (laughs) it's me or no salvation at all. He seems to be putting nixo, nixo on all the religions in the world, with the exception of Christianity. Yeah. Yet, all of this being true, there are still those who have not believed. They have not repented of their sin. They have not sought after Christ. They don't even know who Christ is. In fact, they have never heard the good news of the kingdom which Jesus preached. Yet these two are part of the kingdom of God in this sense. He's their king. He's their creator, their judge, whether they know it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not. In fact, these people may even renounce him as their God and king, and they may take steps to oppose his rule in their lives through the words of Scripture, truth, and may endeavor to persecute the people of God, us. Nonetheless, all of mankind is under the rule of Christ, and in that sense are subjects of his kingdom. Let us not forget this. Who has the authority? That is often the question. I've heard people say, well, who do you think you are to talk to me that way? (laughs) And Jesus would answer, well, I'll tell you who I think I am. I am the creator of the universe. God of the ages the person that determines the destiny of your soul for all of eternity that's who I am secondly the kingdom of God is present that is to say it's near it's now it's at hand it's upon us It's not just something which is, oh, yet future. We ought always to live our lives then with the awareness that God is in control of the world and ultimately of its destiny. It isn't impersonal forces which govern men's lives. May the force be with you. It isn't the fickle finger of fate. It isn't lady luck, good or bad fortune, crystal balls, tarot cards, Ouija boards, astrological signs and charts, horoscopes, or crystals dangling from a gold chain. It is none of those blasphemous alternatives that are posed. And the superstitions of the third world countries have nothing on us as Americans, I'll tell you. We can hold our own when it comes to black magic and the occult. But such superstitions is a poor substitute for the present reality of knowing God as a personal friend and confidant, as one who freed those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death, Hebrews 2, verse 15, as the one who is not ashamed to call us brothers. Oh, that blows my mind. Hebrews 2, verse 11. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers as we trust him. Oh yeah, I think it would be presumptuous for us to claim such kinship to Christ on our own, but it is not we who are making the claim. He claims us because he wills it so. What love, (laughs) what grace. The enemies of God are made his family members, and given a place of honor and safety in his kingdom. And brethren, this is here and now. If we are the friends of God, if we are those who will come to Jesus Christ and trust him, Thirdly, you probably caught this already. The kingdom of God is a person, not a place. Without Christ as King, there's no kingdom. Sorry, dispensationalist. I'm sorry. The kingdom is not about obtaining Palestine. And claiming it for Christ. I'm talking about the land. The country. It's about a person. It is his reign and rule over men, Christ. The establishment of God's kingdom is not about gaining real estate, but about gaining people over whom Christ graciously rules. The kingdom is therefore... Spiritually, spiritual first, physical second. So while Jesus taught of the small gate and the narrow road that leads to life, and the fact that few there are who find it, Matthew 14, the inability of people to find the narrow path to glory is because they're looking for life in all the wrong places. In pleasure, in lust, in money, in fame, in power, in good deeds, in works of mercy, in all the things which are part and parcel of the world, this globe, the physical, the temporal, the tangible Taste, touch, smell, see. That's what people are interested in. And this is why the Athenians had populated their entire city with statues to the Greek gods. And (laughs) lest they offend one of the gods by forgetting to make a statue to him, They even had a shrine to the unknown God. Now, don't get offended, unknown God. We don't know your name, and we don't know who you are, but we recognize that you're out there. And here's your statue, along with all the other gods that we do know about, Zeus, Mars, own. Paul said of the Athenians they were, his words very religious <laughs> Acts 17.22 <laughs> Well, religious yes but a rigid religion of their own making fashioning God as they conceived him to be and how did they fashion him? Well, as one whom they could encase in marble and place in the town square. How then did Paul address them? He spoke of the true God. His words, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, that's Christ, and does not live in temples built by God human hands. Ooh, whoa, whoa. You're just knocked down all of our statues here. He went on. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. because he himself gives life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Now some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Wow, they didn't know what they were saying. But there's the truth. Acts 17, verse 24 and following. (laughs) Brethren, what was the problem with the Athenians? They looked for the kingdom of God on earth. They made God of the earth out of stone and put him in the temple. Carried him there. They were too much into the physical and did not realize that the true God is not far from each one of us. Writes Paul. Thus Jesus taught that the kingdom of God is near. near that is within us when it comes to us and when we are brought into it God does not need your construct of Him. He exists without your definition. He does not need you to serve Him. Since it is you who are beholden to Him for your very life, for your very breath. God doesn't need you at all. But you very much need Him. And it is because God is gracious to needy sinners that He directs many to find that small gate which leads to that narrow path that takes them home to God's kingdom ruled by Jesus Christ. So I charge you today, come today to the end of your search. Rest your weary bones on Jesus the King. That's who you need. That's who I need. That's who all of us need. And the world can't touch any equivalent thereof. What's the world destined for? Read your Bible. Perishing. Great fire. Great destruction. This world is temporary. fact that doom hasn't come just yet doesn't mean it's not on the way. Every day it's on the way. And it's at God's good pleasure that we are sustained till the measure of His wrath is filled up. Our Father, send the Holy Spirit on us to teach us today about the kingdom of God. We don't boss Christ. We don't tell Him what to do, when to do it, to whom to do it. We don't order our life and then just ask Him to sign the okay slip. No, he is the king. He is the ruler. And it's his kingdom we're seeking to enter. I pray that we will see that. But we don't like the idea of kings to have a gracious king that's righteous, that never sins, that never violates the laws of God is a great blessing. There's no earthly king like this. But the heavenly king is like this. And we're so thankful, dear Lord, that you are. You're like us in that you are a man, the God-man that died for us, that stepped in and took our place on the cross but you are that God who chose to do that, that we might be brought into your family. We are so blessed and we are humiliated by your grace and your great love. And we're thankful. Greatly thankful. May you be glorified in saving One more today, Lord. One more. Someone sitting here today. Bring them into your kingdom. Grant them the faith they do not have. The repentance of sin that they don't want to give up. Change their heart. Change their life. Amen. Our closing hymn. Is from the hymnal number two three four two three four in the hymnal.
1: Will you stand with me when you find number two three four?
0: we're thankful for your great salvation for the fact that you sacrificed your own son for the likes of us. It shouldn't be hard for us to understand that if we were good enough to get into glory on our own merit, why then would you send your son to die for the likes of us? If we don't need Jesus and his sacrifice, then everything should be okay. Providing we work hard, pray hard, do all the things that man says we must do to earn a spot in glory. Well, the truth of the matter is that we're sinners by birth and we're sinners by practice. And apart from Christ, we'd be sinners all the way to the grave. But if we have one that stepped into our place of judgment and took the judgment of God Almighty for us if we will trust him. Now, if we think he's foolish to do that, if we think that wasn't for us, then we are lost. There's not many saviors. There's only one savior, says Peter. Peter says, there's no other name given to us among men by which we must be saved. No other, no other. Let that sink in. Not us, not our friends, not our teachers, not our religious confidants. No other can save us but Christ, God's Son. Thank you, dear Christ. Bless us this day with the truth of your word. We are humbled by what you have done for us. But we are also so very, very thankful. Amen.